All right, we're going to be focusing now, turning our attention to the, the study of Joshua that we're doing, namely Joshua chapter 2, which, as Carly referred to earlier, it's the story of Rahab. And uh, I'm not going to read the entire chapter, but you should have uh, on your chairs uh, this This is Joshua chapter 2 in its entirety, so you can read that, you can have that, you can interact with that. And then on the back, there's something interesting that happens in Joshua 2, and that's that Rahab tells a lie and then gets complimented by God for doing it. Hmm, that's an ethical issue, isn't it? And so uh, there's a man named David Clyde Jones who's a specialist in biblical ethics. That's his, that's his area of study and expertise. And I found a quote from him talking about uh, the ethics of Rahab's uh, dishonesty uh, it, when the soldiers come to her door. And I wanted you to have that, but I want to ask you also to just do me this one favor, and that's kind of read it later, <laughs> because I'm giving that to you because we're not going to spend a lot of time on it today. Let me give you broad brush, flannel graph, picture of what happens in Joshua chapter 2. You know what a flannel graph is? Sunday school? Big, it's a big velvet board, big flannel board, and there's little cutouts of people and stuff, and they stick to it, and you can tell stories by arranging the little pieces. I'm going to give you Joshua chapter 2 in a nutshell, and then we're going to study Rahab's life together. Here's what happens. Two spies come into Jericho. They're from Israel. Israel's getting ready to invade the land of Canaan, they're scoping out Jericho. They go in and they seek cover in the home of Rahab. Rahab has a bad reputation. She's a prostitute. The king of Jericho, over here, hears that Rahab has these two people in the flannel graph in her house. And so he sends soldiers that come over to the house. You following me? And the soldiers say, hey, we heard you're harboring spies. And she says, well, one, yeah, there were some men here. Two, I didn't really know who they were. And uh, three, they, they kind of left a little while ago. I just saw them leave. But if you guys hurry, you can probably catch them if you go. They went out of the city into the wilderness. And so she sends them off. And uh, we learn later that Rahab, the reason she did this is she believed that these spies were sent from God. And so she took them up onto a roof and she hid them under stalks of flax, which is a flannel graph's dream come true, right? Little stalks of flax, so easy, just... Psh- You just stack them up. And so she told the soldiers she didn't know. When she gave these, she went up on the roof and she gave the spies the all clear. And then she said something to them, which explains why she's doing what she's doing. This is from Joshua 2, verses 9 through 13. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were just beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please, swear to me by the Lord, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother and my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and to deliver deliver us from death. And the spies said, we will do this. 
And then she said, all right, here's what you need to do. You need to go out my window on this rope and take the long way around to get back out because they're out there looking for you. And so they go down out the window and off they go back across the Jordan. And God rewards her for doing this with the spies and giving them this shelter. But I want to talk about who Rahab is and I want to start by asking you this question. What is the image of yourself that you work so hard to make sure is what people see? This is something that I, I know that what I just did is I asked you a question that sounds like a question that a pastor should ask from a pulpit. But my heart wrestles with this question personally, deeply, because I'm still getting to know you and I want you to like me. I want you to believe that I'm honest. I want you to believe that I'm transparent, that I'm vulnerable. I want you to believe that I'm wise. I want you to believe that I'm called to be here. There's no question in my mind that I'm called to be here. But where the sin comes in is when I start trying to figure out the way in which I will persuade you that I'm called to be here. In the places where you're called to be, in the places where you live, what do you do to put on display a version of yourself that you want people to know? It's fair to say Nashville is an image-conscious town. It matters how we look and how we come off. Rahab's life. We get these snapshots in this story, the flannel graph pictures of this woman. But her life is a complicated, tangled-up mess of tragedy and triumph, and so is yours. And I think sometimes, often, the way that we talk about our lives, we try to control it so much that we end up not really telling the truth anymore because we somehow want to reflect well on what we believe and what drives us. And even in a very perverted way, we want to reflect well upon the Lord. We want to represent Him well, and so we try to present ourselves in a particular way. Vincent Van Gogh is an artist that I have loved since I was in high school. And he painted these beautiful paintings. If you've ever been in a, well, forgive me for saying this, if you've ever been in a women's dorm, you've seen Van Gogh. because the poster people come through and they sell the posters and they go up on the walls and men don't really buy them. I don't know why that is, because they're amazing. But Van Gogh worked himself into many of the paintings that he painted. And I want to show you one of them now on the slide here. This one. Have you seen this? This is called Cypress at Night. And he's in this painting. You can't really see it because of the way that the projector works. But <clears throat> we got a new one of those coming. Um, you see it? It's beautiful, right? It's a crescent moon, stars are out, south of France, romantic night, a couple people walking around, but then you've got this, and it's a horse-drawn carriage, and there's a man and a woman riding at night in a horse-drawn carriage in the south of France under a brilliant starry night. And if you see this painting in its original and you look closely, you see that the man has this red hair and red beard. And that was Vincent. That's how he worked himself into his paintings. 
And so when you see this picture, what do you imagine about his life? He's there. You might imagine that was probably a happy thing for him, right? A romantic, ni- a romantic ride in the south of France in a carriage with a lovely woman who loved him. Van Gogh wrote almost as much as he painted. He wrote over 800 letters that have been preserved, most of them to his brother Theo. And according to Vincent, in his own words, this idyllic romance that he painted was something that he made up. Because he never had a relationship like that. It was more dream than it was reality. Vincent was a deeply troubled person who was chronically bad with relationships and then on top of that was combative about how bad he was with relationships. He wanted this, but he didn't have it. And yet, he's painted himself into this picture. Let me show you another one. He's done it again here. Do you see him? If you know what Vincent looks like, he's the only one looking at us, and he's the one at the forefront. Here he is. He's gaunt. He's shaved. He's got his red stubble, and that's him in a prison yard walking in circles with other prisoners. Menial, mundane, meaningless, despair. Vincent never went to jail. He never spent time in prison. He's doing the same thing here that he did in the other painting. And that is he is putting himself into a situation to tell us something about himself, but it's not true literally. It's true figuratively. He wanted that carriage ride, and he felt like a man in prison. And he's telling us this. Now, I want to ask you, what are, how are you depicting yourself in the canvas that you're putting out for the world? Because I think we do both. I think some of us say, I want people to see me as a person who is, who's got it together and everything's kind of firing on all cylinders and it's just beautiful and romantic and my life is fantastic. That's what I want you to see about me. Others of us, you know, Vincent was, he was an early starving artist, right? He was a guy who said, ah, I want you to see me in my misery. I want you to understand if you're going to know me, you need to know my pain. You need to know that my pain is one of the most important things about me. Can you relate to that? I know I can. Of wanting people to know me according to my pain. That somehow if they know that, there's something more genuine there. I call it fun pain. You know, like when you have that bruise and you go find it just to push on it, just to feel it hurt. We do that with the, you know what I'm talking about, right? We do that with the stuff in our hearts. Why? Why do we do this? Why do we feel like we have to dress things up or dress things down and present images that aren't exactly accurate to tell the story of who we are? What if we just told the truth? Well, that would mean we would need to understand the truth about ourselves. And when we look at the life of Rahab, it's important for us to understand the truth of who she was and where she was in this story. There's one children's curriculum that I was reading about Rahab that basically said this. When you're talking to children about Rahab, tell them, Rahab did some bad things in her life, but she also did some good things in her life. And what we should do is try to be like Rahab in doing the good things that she did and then also try to learn from her mistakes. And there, you've taught people Rahab. I'm not happy with that. And the reason I'm not is because it moralizes her story and doesn't actually tell it. 
Who was Rahab? We know that Rahab was a person who had an obviously sad life. Francis Schaeffer describes her, he summarizes her as a harlot in a heathen land. That's bleak. We know that she lived alone. We know this because there's no husband or children in her story, in her plea for rescue. But we also know that she had a living mother and a living father. They were still alive. And that she had brothers and sisters. And we know that they lived in Jericho. So she lives alone, even though she has family. She doesn't live with them. And this wasn't a culture where everybody had their own house. There was a reason she lived alone. And the reason was because Rahab was a professional relationship wrecker. And almost everyone that she took into her home added to the deterioration of real love and community. Her brokenness isn't just a thing she does, it's a way that she lives. She lives in this brokenness. This is where we find her. Why do you think she lives this way? Why do you do the things you do that you know put you more like Rahab than Jesus? Why? I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. It's because there's this appetite in us that we want to satisfy, we need to satisfy, and we just can't. To which C.S. Lewis said, if I find in myself a hunger that nothing in this world can satisfy, then the most reasonable explanation is that I was made for another world. When the spies came to Rahab, they found a woman who was unsatisfied. She was unsatisfied with her life. Maybe that's why the spies went to her, was because of her reputation. I mean, a part of just espionage 101 is if you want to move in a city without being seen, present yourself as somebody who people will not want to look at. If you can present yourself as a societal outcast, people will do the work of covert ops for you. They just won't look at you. They won't want to recognize you. And so if you go to the home of a prostitute, there's a large number of people who will not see you because that's where you are. And then there's this other group of people who even if they see you will be a little bit reluctant maybe to admit that they've seen you. And that's where, th- that's where she is. And, and so th- it's a handy thing for the spies, but for Rahab, it's her life. It's how she lives. She lives in this brokenness every day. This is the picture. This is what we're presented with when we meet Rahab. But then she speaks to these spies, and she tells them what she knows. And what she tells them is, I know who you are, and I've known my entire life who you are. How do we know that? Well, how long have the spies been out in the wilderness? Anyone? How long have they been out there? Forty years. Let's just say, because Rahab has living parents, that she's 50 or younger. That means since the time she was a child, she grew up with these stories of this nation of people, hundreds of thousands strong, out there in the desert where they couldn't see him, but all they did is they heard the stories. And they heard, yeah, uh, Pharaoh's entire army chased them and tried to conquer them, and the ocean swallowed them up while these people crossed over on dry land. And then they went over to the Amorites, and they just defeated Sihon and Og so, so, so succinctly that the way that she describes this victory was that, uh, how does she say it? 
She says, you devoted them to destruction. So she grows up her whole life with this idea of these people out there and the one little detail that's just always at the end of that story, it's the stuff of ghost story and urban legend, is in guess where they're headed? To Jericho. They're headed to Canaan. That's where they're going. My little girls, tell me every night, close the closet. Why? I ask them why. Because, Dad, in the middle of the night, some monster will come out of that closet and devour us. They just take it for granted that that's what's going to happen. That's the imagination doing the work of fear, right? That's Steven Spielberg making a terrifying movie called Jaws and making it most scary because we never see the shark for the first hour and our imaginations just build this beast. We see the effects, but we don't see the animal itself. This is what's happening. There's this army lurking just beyond their line of sight, and Jericho is scared. And Rahab tells the spies of Israel, this is where we are. We're afraid of you. And we've been afraid of you for a long time. That's a great tactical advantage for Israel to know that they're going into a land that is scared to death of them, that they might as well be ghosts. So this is the story. I want to conclude by taking you through what came next. Israel invades, Jericho falls, the spies keep their word, Rahab and her family are spared. Is that the end of the story? Is that where things end for her? And the answer is no. It's not just as simple as that. We learn more. There's three references in the New Testament to Rahab, one in James and one in Hebrews, that both talk about her being righteous in the sight of God because of this act that she did of harboring these spies. And if that's all there was, maybe we'd moralize the story and say, all right, the point is, is that Rahab believed that the people of Israel were the people of God and God rewarded her for that. And that's why, and so her life was spared. That is as though her life being spared was the reward. But then there's this other reference in the New Testament to Rahab that blows my mind. And it's in Matthew chapter 1. You know what Matthew chapter 1 is? Before I tell you what Matthew chapter 1 is, Back in Numbers 7, listen, I know we're jumping around. I need you to stay with me on this because this, this, this has a payoff at the end that's worth it, okay? Numbers chapter 7, <clears throat> Moses is still alive. People of Israel are out in the wilderness, okay? And Moses tells the tribes to bring an offering, each tribe. And we learn there that each tribe has a prince, a leader. And so the 12 princes of the 12 tribes come and they bring their offerings. And we learn that the prince of the tribe of Judah is a man named Nashon. Okay? doesn't matter that his name is Nashon, it just is his name. Well, when Joshua and the people of Israel invade and take Jericho, the new prince of Judah is a man named Salmon. And he sees Rahab. And he loves her. And he marries her. And that is how the harlot of Jericho became the princess of Judah. And that's not even the end. Because 
Salmon and Rahab had a son named Boaz who married Ruth. And Ruth and Boaz had Obed, who had Jesse, who had David, who we know as king. King David. Rahab was the great-great-grandmother of David. Are you with me? And that's not the end. Because why? Because it's in Matthew 1. And what is Matthew 1 telling us? The lineage of David? No. Rahab was in the line of Christ himself. She stepped from one kingdom to another completely. The picture of her redemption is not simply she believed God and so when the invading armies came, they spared her and her family. God's purpose and plan in redeeming her was so much bigger than that. It wasn't just that her life was spared, but she was loved for the first time in her life. That she was taken as a bride and not as an object. That she became royalty and someone that God used to continue the line through which our Savior, Jesus Christ, would come. It's not true enough just to call her the harlot from Jericho. And neither is it true to deny that she had been the harlot of Jericho. The beauty of her story lies in who she had been and then who she became. And it's true. It's a true story. It's not a pretty story. And it's not a story simply of despair either. It's not a carriage ride or a prison yard. So I want to close with one last Van Gogh. This is called Self-Portrait with Bandaged Ear. If you know anything about Van Gogh, probably one of the things that you know is that at some point late in his life, he had this breakdown and he cut off his ear, his right ear, and he gave it to a prostitute for safekeeping. And then he went to the asylum. And the asylum in those days, you know, there, were, there was no uh, DSM-4 or 5, you know, the, the manual of mental disorder book that exists out there that says, well, you know, you're, you're, you've got a little bit of OCD, but you've also got a little bit of this other thing, and it makes this, nuh-uh. It, it was just madness. If you were clinically depressed, Madness. If you were OCD, madness. If you, you know, I mean, all these things. If you had these conditions, if you had epilepsy, madness. And they put all y'all in the asylum. And there were two kinds of people in the world, those who were sane and those who were mad. And Van Gogh was living with the mad, with the bandage on his ear. But what does he do? He stretches a canvas, and he gets his paint, and he paints. And what does he paint? Something that is honest. A true self-portrait. And it represents him in the midst of his most shameful period of life. How long does it take an ear to heal? Two weeks. How long is the bandage on? How soon after he landed in the asylum did he paint this painting of himself? Within days. 
weeks. This is the image. And it's so brutally honest about who he is. The beauty of it. Nobody in this room could afford to buy it. Because we understand something about Van Gogh. And that's that he was one who was contributing to a true story about beauty and about the tension between loneliness and love. May we be this truthful. We start off so much worse than being harlots in a heathen land. Colossians 1 tells us that we're enemies of God in our minds because of our evil behavior and that outside of Christ we're hopeless. But then it tells us that in Christ we become so much more than just princes and princesses of Judah. We become the sons and daughters of God. We go not from being harlots to princes and princesses, but we go from being enemies of God to his beloved children. That's the story of the gospel. And the life of Rahab is a story of that in miniature. And God has lavished blessing upon her. We are the wounded faces on this canvas that nobody can afford to buy. Henry Nouwen said, our brokenness, your brokenness isn't beautiful. He said, our brokenness has no other beauty except the beauty that comes from the compassion that surrounds it. You've got ugliness in your life, and I've got ugliness in my life, and we're all chronic liars about it. But there is a compassion surrounding the ugliness of your life that makes it beautiful. As Rahab was beautiful to Salmon, you're even more beautiful to God, even at your ugliest. And so what are you showing the world? What is the story you're telling? Is it true? Pray with me. Father, I thank you for the story of Rahab. I thank you for this picture of redemption. I thank you for the way that you took this woman who, when we meet her, her life is, is broken and in ruin, and you take her and you make her uh, more loved and accepted uh, and significant than anybody would have imagined. And Father, we thank you that this is nothing in comparison to what you have done in giving us your son and what you have made us, that her life is just a snapshot of an even greater marvel. And so, Lord, I pray that you would cause us to be people who tell true stories about ourselves and that we don't hide in shame of the ways that we're broken and hurt, but that we understand that there's a beauty about them because you have responded to that brokenness and hurt with grace. So in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.